I'll tell you a little story about my high school days. Um, I went to a little school uh, right here in St. Clair Shores, Lake Shore. Any Shoreans in the house? Oh, all right, we got a couple. So We're kind of on the side of Lakeview. Any Huskies in the house today? Oh, we got more Huskies. All right. Any Cavaliers? Any South Lake? All right, we got some there. Nice. Um, we got a lot of the shores represented. Well, when I was in high school, um, my basketball nickname, because I played basketball, um, it was Iceman. Iceman was my nickname. Why are you laughing? <laughs> but like a cocky young athlete, I put Iceman on the back of my varsity letter jacket. I almost wore it today. It still fits, actually. So. Um, because I was cool, man. I was cool. That's why I had Iceman on the back there. Now, I got the name because in a basketball game uh, in my uh, career there, I sank some free throws and, uh, at the end of a game, uh, and they say you have ice in your veins when you, you perform under pressure, and I did that, and so I got that nickname, and it sort of stuck. Now, I don't know how many people like that name besides myself, okay? Um, but I know one for sure, and that was my grandpa, all right? My grandfather... Love that. And I, the reason why I know he loved that nickname is because every year I would get a card for my birthday from my grandparents with a check for $10. All right, it was a guarantee. And in there would be a note from my grandma and my grandpa. And my grandpa would always write a note in all caps, and he would title it Iceman. So that would go on for, for a long time. And then, of course, he passed away many, many years ago. But um, maybe you have some letters or some cards from people that you love um, that have since passed away. Um, this uh, Just recently, Diedrich told me he has a Bible from his grandma from 1929. I mean, you have sentimental possessions of those who have passed on, and even thinking about it right now, you probably get a little bit choked up. You feel that emotion inside of you, and that's good. And I say that because I want you to understand what it was like to have read 1 John from, the, from a Christian standpoint, when John wrote it in about 85 A.D. You see, when he wrote this short little letter of five chapters, John was an old man. He was an old man living in Ephesus, and he wrote this really to what I would consider, what he, what he would consider his grandkids. This was Grandpa John writing this letter. So when you read it, think of it like that. Think of it like this is an old man writing a letter and he loves, he loves his children, if you will. Um, at the end of his life, uh, Grandpa John uh, lived in Ephesus. He would, they would carry him to church almost, I, I think is the, what I uh, understand through um, the, the history that we have. And so you might picture this, this older man um, coming to church and, and uh, they might say, you know, John, would you like to say a word? And boy quiet silence because this is this is the guy who spent three and a half years with jesus right i mean all all the other disciples had died he's the only one left and so it's like john's gonna talk everybody listen and all john would do is stand up and say five words little children love one another that's all he'd say and he'd sit back down that was his sermon and that's why the title is this morning Little children love one another. It'll come up on the screen for you. Uh, seven times in the letter of 1 John, when you read it, 
for yourself. I hope you go home later on and read it, or maybe you read it tomorrow. But when you read 1 John, you'll see how many times he addresses them as little children. I, I'll, I'll shout it out to you right now real quick, and, and I, we, won't read it, we won't see the verses up on the screen here, but he says um, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. Uh, 2.12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Chapter 2, verse 28, And now little children abide in him. Chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Chapter 3, verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then his very last thing he says, the very last verse, chapter 5, verse 21, Little children, keep yourself from idols. So the message is really clear here. First John, little children, love one another. Love like Jesus. Some say Paul wrote to the churches, whereas I would say John wrote to the families in the church. Little children, love one another. He continuously hammers home this truth, this important thing we must do even today in God's church. Now, He also, while hammering home this point of we should love one another, he also combats three lies. Because there were some lies that were circulating in the churches at that time. Really the same lies we see today. The three lies that are are coming up in the churches, first of all, the truth about who Jesus was. Because there's this thing called Gnosticism, which was challenging the truth. It's a belief system, a a false religion, if you will, that are there not those happening in our world today that are challenging the real truth about Jesus? Then there was John explaining the truth about your sin and your nature, right? Your sin nature. Of course, there's different perspectives um, like that. uh, the, The different perspectives back then are pretty similar to the ones today. In fact, we don't even use the word sin in our culture. It's been phased out. You say the word sin to people, and they're like, what's that? Right? Is that a geometry term? Sin, cosine, and tangent? It's really funny for us math people, I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't tell you how many students I had over the years that pronounced sign sin. I was like, listen, that's what you do uh, on your own time, okay? That's not what we do in this class. Anyhow, I digress. John gives... The third lie, he gives assurance of salvation because false teachers told them, is Jesus really enough? That was the teaching back then. So Grandpa John understood this truth. He wanted to make sure his children understood the truth. And I want you to know that truth today. That truth is, little children, we must love one another. We must love one another. That's my prayer for this church always, is that we would love one another. It's what we say all the time. We are here to help you get closer to God understand the Bible, and love one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray today, God, that you would speak through me. I would become less. You would become more. Your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts. It would shake us up inside that we would want to know the truth so the truth can set us free. Father, I pray on this day that your word would be powerful in our lives, that we would know you more. 
and make you known. In Jesus' name I pray. And the whole church said, nice and loud. Yes, sir. I love it. Thank you. So, 1 John, really a tough book to outline, okay? Especially if you're a left brain person like myself. You see, I like logical, step-by-step books in the Bible, all right? I like to outline it and understand it that way. That's why I like teaching math, right? I, I'm a math person. I taught it for 16 years. Um, when I preach, uh, oftentimes I like to preach, you know, the three-point sermon. How many sermons have you heard that had three points, right? It seems to be the way to, to preach. So the left brain stuff works for me, although um, I would say that First John is far from left brain, if you will. I remember back in uh, 2004 when I first started teaching uh, math in the high school, um, our school had just gotten away from something called Chicago math. I don't know if you ever recall that. I don't know if anybody ever came into contact with what's called Chicago math. The idea is, is that instead of teaching math <clears throat> the way it should be done, one concept at a time, building on the other, right? That's kind of how we, we should do it, I think. There was some people, some teachers out in Chicago, I guess, that thought, no, we're just going to teach a little bit about the concept, and then we're going to keep going and spiral back to it over and over and over again. And um, that was the idea. Clearly, Chicago had a bunch of right-brain math teachers out there. Blasphemers, okay, is my opinion, all right? Don't get me wrong, I love right-brain people. I married one, all right? They're really good at music, joining things together, art, all that kind of stuff. But John, 1 John, he seems to just kind of do that. He sort of spirals back to this theme of love. He's coming back to it. Love, love, love. That's what 1 John is all about. So it's hard to outline, okay? So I'm not, you're not going to get a three-point sermon today, okay? All right? Although you do have three lies that we're going to combat. So I guess, well, maybe I tried. All right? It's also interesting when you look at the life of John that, the, that he is so focused on loving one another. Because when you see John as a young man in the Gospels, you see that John and his brother, what was his brother's name? James, that's right. John and his brother James were known as the sons of thunder. That's right. And, and I think partly the reason why they got this nickname is because there was this one time, and Luke records it, that they were in a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans did not accept Jesus and his disciples. So they suggest, John and James suggest to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That doesn't sound like the John we see here. It doesn't sound like Grandpa John. That's the insensitive John, right, as a young man. Didn't care about other people. They don't want us. Fire, you know. But look what happened to John over the years. I think that's what happens to people who who submit to Jesus who surrender their life to him. Jesus has that effect on people. He takes your hard heart and he softens it. Right? He's able to do that. He's he's able to help you love one another. Love your enemy. That's hard to do, isn't it? Love the person that cuts you off. Right? Love the person that talks behind your back. That's hard to do. But with Jesus, all things are possible. In the Gospel of John, um, John calls himself if you remember, the one Jesus loved. Now, if you ever read the Gospel, and you remember that part where John records, and it's in John's Gospel, he says, this is the one who writes the one who Jesus loved. You might have thought, man, he's kind of bragging. 
But he really isn't. He's being really, really humble. Because he knows himself. He knows he's not worthy of God's love, yet Jesus loved him unconditionally, and that truth is still happening today. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what kind of person you think you are, and maybe you don't think you deserve God's love. I'm telling you, Jesus loves you anyway, and he will die for you. If you're the only one, he will die for you. He's done it. That's the love we have. That's what John was trying to get across. Now, the other unique thing I like about John's writing in this letter is that he uses opposites or contrasts. You see in, the, in, in this letter, it's just a short letter, but he has all these contrasts. He talks about light versus darkness, the new command versus the old command, loving God versus loving the world. There's Christ and then there's the Antichrist. There's truth, there's lies, there's children of God, children of the devil. There's eternal life, eternal death, love, fear, all those he mentions in the letter. When you read it, you'll see it for yourself. My goal, again, is to tackle three lies Christians dealt with back then and we deal with today and show you how John corrected those lies and then told you, taught us, really, how to practically live it out. Right? Because the Word of God isn't meant to just inform us. It's supposed to transform us. It's supposed to change us so we can change others. God will work through us. So, the first lie was Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, and it means knowledge. Knowledge. I think grasping Gnosticism back then was like me trying to hold on to a slippery, slimy, flopping musky or pike that I like to catch out on Great Lake St. Clair. All right? It's a Great Lake, isn't it? Great Lake St. Clair? Not yet, no. They're, they're trying. Okay. But yeah, it's, 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 it's really hard to grasp what Gnosticism is. But I just try to give it to you simple, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Um, but there were really two kinds of Gnosticism. The first one was Sorinthian Gnosticism after a man named Sorinth. He actually lived in Ephesus. He was kind of John's enemy. But this is what he taught. He taught Jesus was man. He was human. That's who Jesus was. He was human. But... Only for the three and a half years that he did those miracles and everything was he actually superhuman, filled with the Spirit, if you will. But he was just human, but he got filled with the Spirit. That was Corinthian Gnosticism, if you will. Now, if I could back up for a second and just tell you, what is Gnosticism in its simplest terms that I can tell you is that they believed you had to have a special knowledge of God to be a Christian. Gnosis knowledge, you had to have a special knowledge. So the first one is Corinthian. The other one is called Docetic Gnosticism. comes from the word dokeen, which is Greek, and it means to seem. So on the other end of the spectrum, where Corinthian or Sorinth taught, you know, Jesus was just a man, um, Docetic Gnosticism taught that Jesus was actually just God. It only seemed that he became human. That was the teaching, see? Um, kind of comes from Plato and his philosophy that the material is, is not um, anywhere near the, the spiritual or the idealistic, if you will. So Jesus would never become human. That's inferior. He wouldn't do that. He was just God. It only seemed that he was a human, sort of like a, an image of, of him appeared on the earth for three and a half years. Now, if you're confused by that, you checked out. Come back, all right? Don't worry. They were confused, too, in 85 AD. They didn't know what was going on which is why John writes the letter. 
This is what he's trying to say. Listen, I know Jesus. In fact, the very first verse of 1 John, which will come up on the screen for you, he says, that which was from the beginning. Of course, in 1 John, or in the Gospel of John 1 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and was with God. So, in other words, Jesus didn't originate when he became a human. He always was, because he's God. But he became human, right? And it says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen and looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What is he saying to these folks, to these little children? I've heard Jesus with my own ears. I've seen him with my eyes. I've touched him with every one of my senses. I tell you, little children, Jesus was real. He was fully human and he was fully God. Now that's a lot to take in, isn't it? That an individual can be fully human and fully God. John will spiral back to this truth later on in his letter, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, you know the Spirit of God. He's talking about false spirits, actually. And he says, you'll know the real Spirit, the true Spirit of God, the the one who teaches um, and confesses that Jesus Christ is human. He's come into the flesh as God. He was fully human and fully God. Now, can you fully understand that? (laughs) No. I can't either, because we're not God. So we can't really quite grasp that, kind of like the Trinity, right? We can't fully grasp that. But does it nullify the truth? Does it take it away from being true? There are calculus problems that I can't understand. And I'm good at math. But there's calculus I don't get. Does it make it not true? Of course not. I just can't grasp it. You see, that's what's going on here. So just because we can't grasp it doesn't mean it's not true. So the next time, I guess, maybe think about it, you have that really, really smart person you know, and they don't believe in God, and they, and they, they don't believe him because they often say, well, I, I can't uh, use all my senses, right? I can't use all my senses to uh, see him and touch him and, and figure it. You know, they're very scientific, right, in their approach to, to God. Well, this is why John writes this, I think. He's like, I've seen him. I touched him. I heard from him. He's real. How do we respond to this truth? Jesus is God fully and fully human. Well, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever is born of him. Little children love one another. And I kind of make it practical for you. I try to help you apply this to your own life. Maybe there's believers in this church that can really understand deeper truths. Does that make you better than someone who cannot? No. Don't get cocky because you think you know a lot. That would just be Gnosticism today. What you need to do is help people understand. There's no levels of Christianity. We're saved by grace and we grow in the grace. Help each other out. You're a Paul? Where's your Timothy? Who's your Titus? Who are you mentoring? Let's be like Philip in, the, in Acts chapter 8, which we'll cover next week. He asked the Ethiopian, if you recall the story, Do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone explains it? And he said, jump on. And Philip said, I'll explain it to you. And he started right there where he was at in his reading of Isaiah. And he explained to him the truth about Jesus. And that man got saved that day and was baptized. That's what we need to do. We need to be like Philip. We need to help others understand. 
We don't need to be spiritual giants alone by ourselves. Let's teach others, which is what John did. That's the first truth. Jesus is God, fully God, and fully man. The second lie John focused on was the lie of sin and forgiveness. He says in the very first chapter, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, here's that contrast of light and darkness, if we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. See, there were false teachers claiming that you could still get closer to God spiritually and your body can still sin like a reality TV show. How is that possible? How can we still get closer to God spiritually while we continue in sin? And John says, you can't. You're lying to yourself. He follows it up with verse 7. In verse 7 he says, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from our sin. So your physical actions have to match your spiritual ones. And we know there are those that come to church on Sunday, act very holy and pious, and then go out on Monday and curse up a storm and gossip and live entirely not like a Christian at all, and then come back on Sunday and do it all over again. That, that's not right. That's not what John has called us to do. The other lie about sin is in verse 8. He continues. He says, if we say we have no sin at all, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Because here's the thing. Gnostics taught you don't have a sin nature. You don't have a sin nature. Deep down inside, we are not bad people. And boy, does our world want to believe that today. If you've ever had conversations with people, they believe that lie. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. You're not a bad person. I just sometimes do bad things. Right? But God's word shows you, you do bad things because you are a bad person. Can we take a drive through the Ten Commandments? Not all of them, just three of them. Three simple questions. Have you ever lied, even if it was to get your wife to stop trying on dresses so you wouldn't be late for the wedding? Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you because, well, well, you just needed it, and you justified that uh, they didn't need it anymore. They had enough, they had too much, so you just took it. Or have you ever looked at a person who wasn't your wife or your husband and had an impure thought about them? Now, if you say yes to those, then by your own admission, not me telling you, just by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving adulterer. (laughs) Sorry. But does that make you a bad person? And the answer is no. That makes you human. From the bloodline of Adam and Eve, who sinned in the garden, and therefore everyone born after has a sinful nature. And John tells you, what do you do when you realize you have a sin? Because Paul says that the Ten Commandments are a tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring you to Christ. They were never intended to try to obey them perfectly. It was always the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments is to point you to the one who is perfect, who died for you. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. That's the context of 1 John 1, 9. Confess and be forgiven. 
And by the way, that's a daily process. Amen? Yeah, we're not praying for forgiveness for salvation every time, but so that we can have fellowship with God all the time. I wish if I became a new creation in Christ, automatically all future sin would be gone. It doesn't happen like that, though, does it? It gives us victory over sin. We don't have to do that sin anymore. We have victory over it, but it doesn't take it away. Am I right? We've got to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, every day. Can I get an amen to that? John will come back, spiral back to chapter 3 and say, in chapter 3 and say, no one, this is important because people take this next verse out of context. This next verse is often taken out of context and taught incorrectly in churches today. Chapter uh, 3, verse 6, it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And you know what they say, is that once you become a Christian, you won't sin again. That's not true. But that's kind of what it sounds like it's saying, isn't it? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Is that what John is really saying? The answer is no. Don't take verses out of context. Keep them in the context. Just read a couple more verses down. Verse 9. What is verse 9? What does he say? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So here's the thing. If someone continues to live in sin and they are perfectly okay with it, I would say they are not born again. They do not have the Holy Spirit in them. You can't be okay with it because when you have the Holy Spirit in you and you sin, it eats you up. You can't stand it. It breaks your fellowship with God. It keeps you from coming to church and reading your Bible and praying. D.L. Moody said, the Bible will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from the Bible. That's what it does. It breaks your fellowship with God. So how do you respond to this truth? What do you do? Well, John says, you protect yourself. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, first of all, you don't love the things of the world. That's what he says. Don't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what's in the world today? Okay? Don't misunderstand here. Okay? What's in the world? Well, first of all, he says in verse 16, there are the desires of the flesh, the physical desires. I don't need to go into detail. You can figure that one out for yourself. Then there's the desire of the eyes, the I wants. I want that big screen TV. I want that boat. I want that house. I want, I want, I want the desires of the flesh, materialism. Then there is the pride of life, our status. Oh, our young people are falling into this trap because of social media, how many people like my post, how many friends or followers I have, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, it's from the world. The world we live in is full of temptations, full of distractions, full of things that we think we want but we don't really need. And John says you don't have to succumb to them. You have victory over sin. In fact, he says in first, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, you are from God And Jesus has overcome sin. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't you love that verse? The Holy Spirit in you is greater than he who is in the world. The devil. You can overcome. In fact, Paul goes on to say, and I I, I can't skip over to to not mention chapter 6 of Ephesians, some of your favorite 
one of your favorite chapters, I bet. The armor of God. Stand firm with the armor of God so that you cannot get caught up in sin. Now, in addition to receiving forgiveness from God, you must forgive others. And this is where some people are like, okay, where's the door? I'll take forgiveness from God, but you want me to forgive him? You want me to forgive her? You don't know what they did to me. Hmm. Well, did they do anything worse than you did to God? John says in chapter 3, verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Let's not pretend to just give lip service to God, but let's do it with action and deed and truth. How do you love with action? Chapter uh, 4, verse 20, if anyone says, Oh, I love God, but hates his brother, well, he's a liar. That's what he said. If he does not love his brother whom he can see, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And his commandment we have for him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The other book that goes with this is Philemon. If you want to say that you read a whole book in the Bible, start with Philemon. It's only one chapter. (laughs) Philemon was a brother in Christ to the Apostle Paul. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, Philemon, I have Onesimus with me. I'm sending him back to you. I know he ran away from you. Onesimus was a servant of Philemon. He ran away. He took off. He wasn't supposed to. But in the midst of taking off, he found Paul and got saved, became a Christian. And now Paul is sending him back and saying, listen, whatever he's done to you, I'll I'll pay for it. I'll, I'll take care of it. Put it on my account. But I want you to forgive this brother. Because he was worthless to you before, but now he's worth something. He's worth something. He's a brother in Christ. Forgive him. So I wonder how that reunion went. We don't don't know, but I hope he forgave. um, Because this is what I know about forgiveness. I've said this to you before. When you don't forgive someone, it's like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. When you don't forgive, it's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt them. You've got to forgive. Grandpa John would say, don't hold a grudge, little children. Love one another. Forgive one another. The third lie that, Paul, uh, that John overcomes here in this little letter is the lie of, am I saved or not? The assurance of your salvation. I have counseled a lot of people on this subject. People have come to me and says, how do I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? How do I know for sure? Um, False teachers want to plant those seeds of doubt. There are even Christian denominations that teach you can lose your salvation. Chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. By the way, that's it right there. Uh, I'll explain further, but do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Do you believe in Jesus and all that the Scripture teaches? Well, that's the proof. That you're a child of God. That's why we sang that song. You're the child of God. That's the evidence. John would say, what do you believe about Jesus? Someone says, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? Because if you believe that Jesus was fully God, fully human, he died for your sins, was resurrected on the third day, ascended back to heaven, will come back again to establish his kingdom, do you believe, as I taught you in Galatians, the only justification for your sins is Jesus Christ, 
Well, if you believe that, then you believe what you should believe about Jesus. And then I'll ask you, do you think Jesus can be faithful to his promise? I think he can. I think the one who fulfilled every Old Testament messianic prophecy, the one who suffered an excruciating death on the cross, not his will, but God's will be done, the one who came back to life and appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, I think he can be faithful to his promise that says, I will give you my spirit. And he came at Pentecost. If you can be sure of, or, or sure of Jesus' um, promise, you can be sure that you'll be in heaven. Because Jesus never fails. Ever. And when you're sure of your place in God's family, you can respond to this truth with boldness in prayer. This is what I finish with. Just think about this. You want your prayer life to get better? I do. <laughs> I'll be the first one to raise my hand. I need better prayer life. I need, I need to pray better. <laughs> but what does that mean exactly, to pray better? Right? First of all, I'm sure it means pray more. All right? um, maybe you feel that way too. How do you pray? What, what is the secret to prayer? John tells us. In John 5, verse 14, He says, this is the confidence that we have towards him. This is the boldness that we have when we pray. If we ask anything, and I underlined it so you wouldn't miss it, according to his will, he hears us. This is the secret to prayer that most people ignore. They don't understand. I know most of our prayer is filled with um, lots of prayers about people we, we know are having poor health. or, And I'm not saying you can't pray for those things. I'm just saying... Listen to what John says to pray for. Anything according to his will. And when you pray according to his will, guess what percentage of your prayers will be answered? Yes, that score you want on the math test. 100%. 100% of your prayers will be answered when you pray according to his will. You can't miss. You just can't miss. But I know what you're thinking. Well, what's his will? Right? How do I know what his will is? Well, I don't know all the details, but I do know this. This is his will, that you would know him and you would make him known. I mean, isn't that what Jesus taught? That you would know him and make him known? That's love, right? That's love played out. To know God, to know the depths of his love, and to love one another. How do you love someone? Well, you can make them a dinner. You can make me a carrot cake. I'd love you. My favorite cake. Right? You can love people with with stuff like that. But the greatest love is to tell them about Jesus. Is to help them understand that Jesus loves them. Because God can love someone so much more than we can love them. Because he can love them all the way to heaven and back. I mean, he knows love. Little children, let's love one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I invite the music team to come up and play our final song. Father in heaven, this morning I'm just so encouraged by your word. Father, I pray that, that this message would just change us. Would, would cause us to want to go out and seek others to love. Practically, um, Father, I pray that this word that, that I've preached today from, from 1 John, I pray that it would help, it help some this morning 
um, not continue to believe any lies. I pray, Father, that we would all know the truth so the truth can really set us free so we can live the life that you've called us to live and it's an abundant life. It's a wonderful life to know your son, Jesus. Father, I pray, I pray that as we sing this final song, that we would just put our trust in you. That we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.